I'm Julian G. Simmons, and this is Talking About Our Generation. As 2020 is winding down, I, for one, am glad to say goodbye to this tumultuous year. And I am really looking forward to a new start in 2021, especially at noon on January 20th, when we inaugurate our new president, Joe Biden, and Kamala Harris as VP. No matter how you feel about who won the election, that moment marks a fresh start, and boy, do we need it. If you're a Trump supporter, you might not be all that enthused about this episode because it's custom-made for those, like myself, who feel that these last four years have been the most destructive for our democracy and our planet in history. For many of us, the Trump presidency has been traumatic, depressing, and the cause of relentless anxiety. Brett Stevens of the New York Times recently expressed how excruciating it was to live and work in the shadow of Donald Trump. He wrote, One of the worst aspects of Trump's presidency is the way he simply consumed all of our mental bandwidth, so that it became all but impossible to think of anyone or anything else. Experiencing his presidency was like a bad reaction to dog dander, or a painfully long bout of hiccups, or trying to swat away a determined mosquito as it buzzes your ear as you are drifting off to sleep or a 6 a.m. car alarm that won't stop, or a case of poison ivy in some delicate part of the anatomy. The election of a new president should put an end to all of that, but it hasn't, unfortunately. The pandemic is raging. We're preparing to celebrate the holidays in isolation, exactly the opposite of what we all need. Millions of us are feeling the continuing stress, suffering from financial hardship, the soaring COVID cases, and the uncertainty about the future of our country. We're also suffering from a sort of Trump exhaustion, and it's far from over. We could all use a session with a therapist. In today's episode of Talking About Our Generation, that's exactly what we're doing. In the early days of Trump's administration, Dr. Jennifer Contarino Panning, a psychologist from Illinois, not only recognized what Trump was doing to us, she gave it a name. In her chapter in the best-selling 2017 book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 27 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess a President, Dr. Contarino Panning coined the condition Trump Anxiety Disorder, or TAD. She described what he was doing to us and just how dangerous it was. So... Lay back on the couch and listen in as the doctor counsels us on how to cope with the continuing case of Trump anxiety disorder. Don't worry, the session is free. Welcome, Dr. Contarino Panning, to Talking About Our Generation. It's very nice of you to join us. Glad to be here. So when it comes to what you have appropriately coined as the Trump anxiety disorder, and we're also dealing with the pandemic, uh, we as Americans have been dealing with a lot. Mm -hmm. There are so many levels to all of this. 
There was a nationwide survey commissioned by the American Psychological Association and conducted by the Harris Poll that showed that nearly 7 in 10 adults, 68% surveyed, called the election a significant source of stress compared with 52% in 2016. So it was a huge source of stress. Now, Mm -hmm. the election is over. But the battle continues. We have until January 20th when President-elect Biden will be sworn in. Hopefully, we won't have to forcibly take Trump out of the White House, which is a possibility. Mm -hmm. And we are still dealing with the pandemic. Mm -hmm. There's this ray of hope with vaccines, but a lot of people don't realize that it could be several months before they actually get their own vaccine. As Americans, we have never gone through anything like this. Mm -hmm. We don't know what to focus on and how to deal with any of this. Absolutely. This is going to be the start of a lot of digging out, and it may take the next four years to undo some of the damage that has happened in the past four years. Not just the pandemic, the policies, the stripping away different rights, the not focusing on, on things that have needed focus, like our involvement in foreign countries, there's a lot of things that will need repair and there will need to be a a real focus on how do we get out of this mess and how do we repair and and move forward and not even talking about the pandemic. I was reading your chapter in the book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. 27 mental health experts assess the president. Right. And in that book, published in 2017, there was an assessment of Trump from a psychological perspective. And who he is. Mm -hmm. And you know, when you read through the list, it it's um, it's a long list of the things that are considered mental illness that he has. It is. There are things like dehumanization and lying and misogyny and racism and physical bullying and relational aggression and emotional bullying and cyber stalking and it goes on. He's done all of it, mm-hmm. but. When the everyday person hears those things, they don't necessarily understand how that has affected them. For example, when I was a child, I had a terrible problem with bullying. I was little, I was smart, I was Mm -hmm. pretty for a boy. It was like just a million things that caused my fellow students to pick on me all the time. And when I see Trump's bullying, it affects me in such a deep way. How do we deal with those things as human beings? Yeah, that's, I think that's such an important issue, right? And I've seen it, certainly seen it um, in my practice, working with therapy clients, specifically with people who have had some sort of relationship with an abuser, whether that's a, a parent, a significant other, a boss, somebody who's needlessly cruel and unfair and all about their own needs over, you know, the other persons. In terms of what we're experiencing, though, is this visceral sense of this is really awful and hurtful and reminds me of something else that's um, happened in, in your life. And I think we've always put the President of the United States on the pedestal being decent and having respect and not name-calling and not jabbing at making nasty comments to, to people regularly. Right. And that's what we've, that's been the difference in the past four years. We've never seen this before. But there was no dangerous case of George W. Bush or Ronald Reagan books. There, there just, there wasn't. There was obviously issues and difficulties and all that. But in terms of what we know and knew about Trump's 
personality and how that would impact his presidency and the American people, we knew that was going to be extremely destructive and harmful. And it has been. Right. So what do we do now? We need to cut off Trump's source. We need to cut off his attention. I'm really happy to see finally the media is cutting off the lies and refusing to broadcast them. Finally, we feel like that should have been happening a long time ago. But what we can do to protect ourselves is to not let ourselves be witness to that anymore. Which is still hard. Like I, I remember posting something online before the actual election and saying the one thing that I'm looking forward to is not having to hear or see Trump again. Yeah. We're still seeing him. And we have to deal with this every day. And all the things that you read online or hear from people such as yourself is do these things to keep yourself centered mm-hmm. and grounded. But a lot of those things haven't been available to us because of the pandemic. We can't go to the gym. We can't get together with family or friends if they don't live with us. We have to worry about every time we go out the door. We have to worry about people who don't wear masks. And then there is 70 million other people who voted for Trump who don't feel like a lot of us do. And we have to live with them. Yes, there's a huge mess. And you've touched on several different parts of the mess. And in, in terms of Trump, I think it's sort of time for us to trust that there are adults that are coming in to do the White House in January. There's already a task force that President-elect Biden has put together full of experts of public health and medical experts for the pandemic. There are things that are happening. So I think my thought with American people is let's give ourselves some space to trust that and to, you know, not get sucked into it. You know, what we need to do, I think, is take the step back, trust in the process that there are people in military and all sorts of other, you know, intelligence folks involved in this. And, you know, I don't know. That sounds reassuring, but it's it's all kind of external. But what, what about, you know, what you're living in your own life, in your own living room, in your own bedroom when you're laying in bed at night? It's really scary because we've never experienced this as a country before. We've never gone through anything like this. But we have to come back to like, how do we cope? If you're, If I'm working as a therapist with somebody in an abusive marriage, until that person is able to leave that situation... All we can do is help them cope with the circumstance. So it's, it's not that fulfilling. And it's really frustrating and hard for that person because there's a limitation. There's a box in which they can navigate. That, well, that brings up an interesting point, I think. And that is, say you're someone who is Democratic-leaning mm-hmm. and your spouse or partner or parent or best friend is someone who was a Trump supporter and all that implies. How do you find a middle ground? I think part of what we need to look at is, is this a relationship that is healthy, right? If it's not healthy, there's probably going to have to be some estrangement or some distance in that relationship to be able to come back together at some point in the future. My dad is a Trump supporter. And what we've had to figure out and navigate in our relationship is that we can't talk about politics. We just can't go there. We're both stubborn. We're both opinionated and very much in our opposite corners. And it's not helpful. And so for some people, I think having limits and what they talk about and what they are able to have as conversational topics is important. 
I think at some point in the future, we are going to want to be able to talk to our loved ones again. Probably not till Trump is removed from the White House. Because there's been so much propaganda and outright lies and misinformation and brainwashing of a good amount of his, of his supporters, that healing process cannot start until after he's gone. It's a very long process. Um, it takes a long time for people to slowly start coming over to reality. It's not going to happen overnight. Uh, we can help our loved ones if there's trust and good love and caring in that relationship at some point, but it's going to take some time and it's not going to happen overnight. And it seems like both social media and the press aren't helping to calm people down. They continue to fan the flames. That's problematic, right? With the social media sharing of all sorts of conspiracy theories that QAnon stuff, and at some point, we're going to have to figure out a way to rein that in. And the media has a responsibility that they never had gone in the same way before. And what they're doing now has been wonderful. <laughs> Cutting Trump off, saying we can't, we can't broadcast these lies. We refuse to do that. But there's going to have to be more of that accountability coming from the media, as well as for us to be understanding more about critical thinking and how to understand logic and how to understand what things are real and what's based in factual knowledge and what's based in all sorts of emotional reasons. You know, it's interesting. I have seen friends of my own who, leading up to the election, had become obsessed with listening to the news. Mm -hmm. Everything that was happening, they were watching CNN or MSNBC or Fox or whatever. Yeah. And it was destroying them emotionally. Mm -hmm. I could see it happening. What do you tell them to do? I mean, how do you tell them to cope? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I educate them about what's happening when we watch that information. We know we're having a stress reaction because there's so much intensity and we're inadvertently getting triggered. Our minds are interpreting this as an actual threat, not just a perceived threat. Just like, you know, if you had a robbery in your house, your brain and your body would react in a way to protect ourselves and to be able to figure out how to survive that incident. And sorry, our brains don't differentiate between an actual threat, like a robber in our house versus a perceived threat, like watching a newscast and having a lot of stressful information in that. So we really do have to remember that and protect ourselves and limit that because we are putting ourselves through this stress cycle. And we know what happens with chronic stress, right? With depression, anxiety, physical issues, difficulty sleeping. After a while, you know, cardiac issues and other health issues can result from chronic stress. So we have to be aware of that and also separate ourselves a little bit. Our brains do not like uncertainty. And so think about how much uncertainty we've been through since the pandemic. We've had the pandemic. We've had George Floyd's murder and racial injustice and all of that. Plus out here in California, wildfires. Just just intense fires where our director, his brother, was seeing the fires outside his kitchen window more than once. Uh, and it just kept happening and happening and happening. Mm -hmm. One of the things, for example, that I do to alleviate stress from all this is I would take walks. I'd go out to a mm -hmm. lake near where I live and walk around the lake and all that. But the right. temperature literally was 115 for a week. Yeah. And the smoke was everywhere. And you're stuck inside. I mean, you can't do anything at all to alleviate mm -hmm. these things. And it was like living in hell. I also wonder the fires are 
obviously a, a red flag as to what's happening to our climate. Yeah. And and the inaction that the Trump administration has done for this. So that's yet another stress mm-hmm. factor. I'm in Chicago and we were just looking at what was happening on the West Coast, just horrified and obviously very concerned. So all of these things, right? Any one of those things would have been a major impact and a major stressor. But all of that with a cumulative impact and a cumulative effect and Trump still being Trump, as well as the election, as well as a complete failure of leadership and, and managing it, the pandemic, and the disregard for human life. And I think those types of things piled up has had a huge psychological impact on the majority of people. Well, once the pandemic is resolved, their mental health will go back to a baseline of pre-disaster. But right now, we are struggling. We can only expect humans to tolerate something for a short period of time. Unfortunately, that's just how we're designed. We're not designed to have a crisis situation that lasts for many months. And so we're seeing that fatigue, we're seeing that burnout. You know, I mean, on the good side, you know, I, I work from home. I'm very lucky in that way. I can you know, make a living and help people from my home. There's a lot of people that are not able to do that. The privilege of being either bored and restless and cooped up versus the actual reality of people in very dire situations, financially losing their homes. But it's all stressful, right? There's, there are a lot of people like that. If they don't get a paycheck, they are screwed. And they're the ones who have to take public transportation. They have children to feed most often. They can't just walk away from their work. They A lot of them usually have a job where they're not insured. So they depend on things like the Affordable Care Act. And even then you have to pay for part of it. And... I'm not in that situation. So I have to think that the stress there must be a hundred times more than what I go through. And I'm completely stressed by all this. What would you say to somebody who is in that situation that doesn't have all the opportunities that we have? Well, they're, they're on survival mode. I mean, you know, if you think about if people are not, you know, feeling having safety in their environment and having basic needs, you know, food, water, housing, things like that, they're not even able to access the higher level needs in terms of, you know, psychological psychological needs. So, no, they're on survival mode. They are in complete like figuring out how to how to get their next paycheck, how to it's just completely heartbreaking to think about that and to also think about the disproportionate amount of people of color in their communities who have both gotten sick as well as have died from COVID. There's right. So, but what do you tell somebody like that who is in that fight or flight mode 24 hours a day? Yeah. Well, so, so, you know, coming down to the basics, can people work on deep breathing? Because we know deep breathing helps to regulate our nervous system. You know, what, how do you, what do you say? Do you just say breathe or is it just getting down to the very basic baby steps. It's getting back to the basics of what we can do in the moment. I don't know if you know Viktor Frankl. He was a psychiatrist who survived the Holocaust. His yes. book, Man's Search for Meaning, is amazing. He wrote it through Incredible experiences yeah. surviving the concentration camps. And he talks about this. He talks about what can we do in a moment when we have complete chaos and terror surrounding us. We can come back to thinking and hoping for better days. Hope can go a long way. We can also come back to, you know, gratefulness and gratitude for what we have. But what about people who have lost everything? You know, people who are 
working class don't have anyone to take care of their kids and they have to work even through all of this horrible stuff that's going on. They can't, they don't have the the ability like, you know, you and I are sitting here right now and we can work from anywhere and do our work. Whereas a lot of those people are the people who are the service industry people and they can't do that. And so there's a huge amount of stress on all those people. What would you say to someone like that? I would validate their feelings and say that's yes, that's absolutely understandable what you're experiencing and feeling, and it's not fair and it's wrong. You know, it's wrong that we don't have uh, equity in our country for on many different levels, like afford access to affordable, good childcare, all those types of things. And I think people are having to be creative and and probably needing work and and needing to figure out ways to survive, you know, out of desperation. And that's really unfortunate. Do you think that what we are experiencing with this double whammy, that it is a kind of PTSD, would you say, or not as severe as that? Well, I, you know, that's very much on my mind. Uh, Certainly healthcare workers are experiencing moral outrage and going through traumatic experiences that most of us aren't. Um, and I, I suspect that after the crisis has moved through and they're, they're having time to come back to some kind of normal, that they will be experiencing PTSD symptoms. Um, I think for the most of us, we've been traumatized and stressed. I think we will expect that the crisis, when it resolves, we will go back to normal psychological functioning. But certainly people who have trauma histories, who have been struggling with mental health issues, they're struggling that much more during the pandemic. Yeah, like I've been thinking about people who have now started taking drugs again because of all the stress or people who have eating disorders. The list, I'm sure, goes on and on of people who are already coping with something serious. Absolutely. And, you know, people who are who are isolated to begin with, and then are even that much more isolated. But also like, I mean, you know, I was talking earlier this week to somebody who lives alone, and she was talking about the struggles with that. And then I'm talking to somebody today that's also having struggles with their, their roommates and, you know, their significant other, like relationships are not built for this much together time. There's reason why we have space and then come back together. So I would say people are struggling on multiple levels, but certainly people, you know, with addictions, it's really challenging. As we've talked about, our audience is baby boomers. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the people who become very ill and died are older people, mm-hmm. and they may have health issues. And so the thought of mortality is much more real for them, mm-hmm. and, and the pandemic and the stress is exacerbating all that. Mm -hmm. How do you see the baby boomer as compared to the rest of the population? And what do you recommend for baby boomers to feel more in control of their lives? Mm -hmm. Well, that's, you know, death is something that's completely out of our control, right? I mean, we can, we can work out, we can, you know, we do things to help protect our health. And yet, some you know, all of us, I think, have stories of people that have just died very suddenly, unexpectedly, and and that was not planned for. So I think you're right. I think there's one of the things that we I've talked to many clients about this 
just what can we control? There's a lot of things that are completely out of our control. We can also look at, you know, what are the things that we can do safely? People are doing a lot of the Zoom connections with friends and loved ones. And if we look at social connection as so important during this time, so it's like, okay, it's kind of like your medicine. <laughs> you know, we just have to plan the Zoom thing and, and know that probably afterwards we're going to feel better. We're going to feel more connected to our loved ones. We can also, in terms of control, we can, you know, figure out how we want to cope. We can, I mean, from my, my thought is that, you know, ideally it would be a combination of a couple of things. I think for some people, they have a strong novelty need and we're feeling a little cooped up over things like Groundhog's Day. We're doing the same things. Like try a new recipe, you know, try like, you know, learn about some new concept that you've been interested. If you're into science, geek out on something that's cool to you, like do something that's new, right? We can't plan a vacation. <laughs> we can't, and most of us, we can't look forward to the things that we might have looked forward to. What if one of your clients doesn't seem to take the pandemic seriously? Do you avoid that because it seems political or do you try to educate them? I'm encouraging people to be overly safe because I think given the out of control nature of the current numbers uh, throughout much of our country, it's, it's scary out there. People have choices, obviously, and my job is not to judge them, it is to help them sort through and, and educate themselves about the different risks with the, the choices they're making. And, you know, we have to say, like, this has been a year completely upside down, uncertain, so much chaos, so much unpredictability and confusion. I, I've encouraged people to think about future planning, to think about a year from now, better days when we have the vaccine, when we have other, you know, measures in place that so we can come together safely. It's very hard. You know, I'm not going to, you know, this is not, this is not easy for anybody. I mean, you know, we can't forget in this equation that therapists are also human beings. We are. So how are you dealing with that? Yeah, it's been a very strange time to be a therapist because you're right. We usually have distance. If I have somebody who's processing the loss of a loved one or a trauma, I'm not usually typically going through the same exact situation during the same time as, as that person that I'm working with. But the pandemic certainly has ratcheted that up significantly. Well, how has that affected you? There's been some interesting parts to it. There's been some sweet parts to it. Like clients are like, how are you doing? And clients are seeing our lives more, giving clients a more intimate view of who we are as people and maybe reminding them that we are human as well. And I have good moments and bad moments, just like my clients. And I try to be honest with them about that too. You know, I don't have a, a magic wand. I'm going to sit with you in this. I'm going to help you hopefully have a different perspective. That is my job. And also talk about coping and talk about ways that they can, you know, get back into a more centered place. But knowing it's it's hard and, and it's being a human going through the same crisis has been draining. And a lot of therapists, we're not doing that well. We're burning out. We're, you know, struggling. Because you're an essential worker. You are definitely an essential worker. Mm -hmm. I, I was thinking of something while you were talking, though, and that is there are people that I've come across that don't identify at all with Trump, but yet I'm not saying they're Trump-like, but they there are progressives that I know who are misogynists or narcissists or yeah. things like that. Do you think that there are people who are in therapy who are suddenly realizing parts of themselves that are like Trump? Hmm. And it's as a revelation that's helping them to change and be better people? Well, I think um, one thing I'm, I'm seeing more of is sort of this whole idea around intention versus impact, right? With Trump, there's an intention there to hurt people. There's an intention 
to, you know, just be about him and not care about other humans. And for a lot of us, you know, that have good intentions, we still have an impact and we hurt people and we, you know, do things that are, are not good and, and can impact relationships negatively. And so I have seen more of that, especially if we, we talk about racism and some of the other topics that have really come up since George Floyd's murder and more of the, um, the nations waking up to that. Like we really see that people are realizing, I didn't think of myself as racist, but I'm realizing, you know, I've been acting in ways that are consistent with racist because I was good intention, but I didn't know. And they weren't aware of some of the things that they do that are racist that to them right. don't seem racist at all. Uh, I was thinking of another situation too, and I'm, I'm curious to know what you think about it. I have a friend who was a school teacher. He and his wife live in Montana. He is definitely a Democrat, progressive. And after the election, there was a big pro-Trump protest in the city where he lives and he went there and he was confronted with some really ugly people that he wasn't at all prepared to deal with. And I'm just wondering, is it a good thing for people to be vocal or does it create more problems for them? Like in this, in his case, he went there and he made some comments, but he said them jokingly and people just accosted him, Trump supporters. Is it a healthy thing to do that, to voice our opinions, uh, even if it's face-to-face with someone, or are, are, or is it stupid and are we endangering ourselves? Well, probably more endangering because we think about Biden bringing back the soul of America and uniting us and how challenging that will be. And part of what we've really lost sight of is, is respect and listening to the other side, right? So we see that you know, with Trump, with name calling and, you know, just kind of a masculine, like a cowboy, you know, from the Wild West perspective, right? There's a winner and there's a loser and that's it. And of course, you don't want to be a loser. So what do you need to do to win? Is it lie? Is it cheat? Is it, what is it, right? And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm heartened to know that Biden has a lot of women, some really strong women in his cabinet. And I think we need to start having some conversations of how do we start listening to each other and giving space for that to happen, a conversation to happen, rather than going to defensive posturing of this is my side and I need to protect it at all costs, right? So, but how did we end up in this place, do you think? I mean, that we are so, inc- we're more divided than we ever were. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest disappointments, like Rob was telling me that after the election, that when he started hearing, for example, that that Trump went Ohio, that he went and hid in his bedroom for a few days and didn't want to come out because yeah. he was so depressed about it. And not just that, it was was what so many people that I know we talked about was that we had maybe foolishly had been hoping for this kind of landslide, thinking the Americans are mm. not going to put up with this and they're going to vote right. for truth and democracy and mm-hmm. the soul of America. And yet, and the majority did, but there was still this huge amount of people mm-hmm. that didn't. And how do we come to terms with that? Because right. that is just disturbing. You know, our country is based in and instructional racism and concepts and beliefs that are problematic. And we haven't 
develop. You know, if we think about, like, think about adolescence, period of development, right? I have a preteen and teen at home, and I see this all the time. They want all the freedom and all the, you know, autonomy in the world, and they don't want to have responsibility. And we, as a country, like, there have been some huge gaps of responsibility, including in our leadership, including Trump didn't do this by himself. He did this with the complicity and the full permission of, of GOP leadership. And this has been brewing for many years. And this is just like the eruption, I think, and we cannot ignore this for any longer period of our country's development. And people are, are angry and they're frustrated. And people are, people of, of color are quite rightfully so sick of, of, of having their people be murdered and killed in all sorts of situations that we're now kind of waking up to, right? As a white American, I'm a white middle-aged American. I have a lot of privilege of just being where I'm at in life. Um, you know, we often just want to look at, you know, our own little world and how we're impacted. And, and I think what we're seeing is a reckoning that we're either going to have to start looking at the climate and the environment and healthcare and caring for people and respect or we're not. And if we're not, I think we know where we're going in terms of our country is not going to survive much longer and certainly not have any consistency of, of feeling of security. Do you find yourself frustrated a lot in, in your work where you want to provide answers that aren't there or? Sometimes I do. And I feel, and I've never been in a pandemic before, but in terms of being with my clients and offering support and guidance and empathy and all those things that we can do to to help a little bit and just acknowledging that it's a limitation. I don't have the, the ability to change circumstances in a huge way. But on an emotional level, there are ways that you deal with problems yeah. or you help people. And I think a big part of it is just having someone there to listen. Mm-hmm where, you know, we may not feel comfortable to tell people at home that we're afraid or angry or those things because mm-hmm. we don't want to share that kind of what we might consider a negative energy or whatever. Yeah. Or right. we don't want to scare anybody in our at home that we live with or our kids or whatever. So we mm-hmm. need to have those people like you who are so invaluable to right. the sanity of our country. And In closing, looking ahead to that soul of America that Mm -hmm. Biden has stressed over and over again is it's not, he hasn't said he's the answer, but, and he says he's not the answer, that we're the answer as a group. Eventually, somehow we have to, as a people, find a way for us all to get along Mm -hmm. and not have such divisiveness between us, which Trump has been really good at stirring up. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've been in this situation or not, but as a therapist, how do you encourage your patients to find that common ground mm-hmm. so that they can make the best of the situation and maybe learn something from it? Yeah. You know, I think we, at some point we'll need to learn from and, and talk to and learn how to communicate with people that are very different from ourselves. You know, part of what we're seeing is we're all in these echo chambers of very similar views and very similar, you know, perspectives and perhaps similar, you know, education levels and all, all sorts of other things. And I think we need to figure out like, how do we communicate and 
surround ourselves with people that are from different backgrounds, that have different political beliefs, that have different, you know, life experiences, and talk and listen and and learn. And I think in some ways we're a lot more similar than than different. You know, everybody wants to feel safe. Everybody wants to have families feel supported. You know, people want to have access to healthcare that is good for them and and meets their needs. And we have a lot of differences. And I think part of it's going to have to be looking back from this rugged individualism of the country that's really been part of our foundation and look at like, how do we look at what's better for people in general? But do you think we have become more of a me society than a we society? Absolutely. I mean, we can look at other countries as different Asian countries that wear masks because SARS and MERS and all that, but they see it as like, this is a way that we take care of each other in our society. And we've realized through this process that many people aren't concerned about that. And talking about people who are like from rural areas and don't have safety in their needs and financially are very insecure. I think people who are also quite blessed with, with wealth and with resources you know, being able to see that there's also responsibility with that. And the responsibility sometimes is coming back and paying more taxes and being able to contribute more. And, and that's very hard for some people because of, because of the individualism, because a lot of people don't see that, you know, when they, their wealth was created, not from their own circumstances, but a lot of other people that helped them, that opportunities, that luck, there's a lot of circumstances and a lot of people can't really think at that level. That's a pretty high high level of, of critical thinking. But that, I think, along with the anti-experts and anti-science bias that we have in our country right now, we need those are problems that we really need to work on. You know, how to help people understand things and understand the bigger systemic issue. And where that also gets complicated is we know that there's brain differences between conservatives and liberals, for instance. We know there's been research studies that have shown that the brains of conservative and liberals differ in terms of their reactions to things and their structure. So typically what they've found is that conservative brains are more heightened to threat. And so when you think about some of the safety issues, right, some of the rhetoric that Trump had around if Biden gets elected, the suburbs will become overrun by gangs and will be very unsafe and all that. That is a real concern for people. Whereas Perhaps that rhetoric with liberals would not have been as effective because there might have been a sense of like, wait a minute, is that going to happen? What is the logic behind that? And so we just need to be aware of those types of differences too. So with some of the propaganda and the fear and all that, it's not based on logic. So if liberals come back and go, well, here's the you know facts and the data that disprove this, we're not going to get anywhere. We really need to appeal to that emotional fear and say, well... You know, real, that, that's a longer process. That's not something that happens right away. So we need to give people electric shock therapy. <laughs> that's what you're saying. Well, to get them to think, it, right? Okay, it's a I'm long <laughs> process of very, very uh, calmly being able to derail some of that information. But it's, it's kind of a, it's a big mess. And it's going to take a long time to really get back to some sense of of decency and respect. And I think that's, you know, the decency, the, the respect and the empathy, I think, is what we really need to be focusing on and how to be able to take a couple of steps towards each other again. Well, I think with the with President-elect Biden, that is a step 
definitely towards hope and the right direction mm-hmm. and the vaccine. Yes. That's, I think when we have the timeline for the vaccine in terms of when it will be available to majority of people, that will give people something to hang their hats on and, and something to say, okay, we have a target and we can get through the next four months because we know at that point we will have more ability to go to a movie and go to a concert and indoor dine and all the small pleasures of life and see our families and hug them and you know be around them without worrying if, if we're going to get each other sick. Well, as you therapists say, our time is up. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. You're welcome. And I think that we will give people some new ammunition here on how to deal with this ongoing crisis. Yeah, I'm pleasure being here. And, um, you know, we will get to better days. We, we know that. They will be coming, and we have to figure out how to tolerate it in the meantime. Yep. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Sometimes the best treatment in a stressful time is just talking. If you're having trouble coping because of these past four years or because of COVID-19, reach out to someone who will listen. If you don't have anyone, find a therapist who can listen and help you through it. Psychology Today has an online portal that lists available therapists, and we will post that on our website at www.talkingaboutourgeneration.com. That's talking without the G and about without the A. There are also hotlines if you feel you need emergency help, and we'll list those on our website as well. And you can always share your story with us. Check out our share page to see how. We're not therapists, but we're good listeners. I'd like to give a shout-out to Rob Wilson, our director, and to Bill Aldridge for providing us with our theme music. In closing, I want to beg you not to take chances with your health right now. Postpone family visits and venture out only when you need to. Wear a mask, use hand sanitizer, and keep your distance. We want you around to experience life once again in happier times, which are coming. Happy holidays, everyone. I'm Julian G. Simmons. Thanks for listening.
COVID-19 is spreading in the United States, and leaving your home increases your chances of getting and spreading the virus. Stay home except to get groceries, medications, or other essentials. Check state or local government guidance for where you are. If you must leave the house for essential items, take the following steps to help avoid the spread of COVID-19. Maintain social distance, approximately 6 feet or 2 meters from others. Wear a cloth face covering in public. This podcast includes copyrighted material which has not always been specifically authorized by the copyright owner. This content is used only where it is the specific subject of commentary by us and our guests, as part of our effort to advance understanding of issues of social and historical significance. We believe that this constitutes a fair use of the material in accordance with the Fair Use Section of U.S. Copyright Law, Section 107, which reads, The Fair Use of a Copyrighted Work. For purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, or research, is not an infringement of copyright. Further information on this claim of fair use may be found on our website, at talkingaboutourgeneration.com.